be reading this morning from John chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. Uh, you follow along as we think about the cross this morning and the crucifixion. And uh, here's part of John 19, starting in verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Let's, uh, let's pray together this morning as we uh, look into God's word. Lord, um, we're so grateful for the privilege to be here today. Uh, Lord, we take the freedom of worship for granted. Lord, help us to realize that there are many places in the world today that can't worship openly and have to worship secretly. Lord, thank you for the privilege of uh, worshiping you today. Lord, thank you for the uh, privilege of being a part of the body of Christ, that we can rejoice with those that rejoice and uh, encourage and pray and weep with those that weep. Lord, open up our hearts and minds to your word this morning now as we uh, look at uh, the cross, and uh, Lord, may you speak to us. We uh, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have been with us uh, the last uh, five or six weeks, uh, we've been on a journey. We've called it Journey with Jesus, and what we're doing is we're uh, walking with Jesus through the last week of his life and uh, taking it day by day and examining from the Gospel of John what that last week was like. And it's amazing that uh, the Gospel of John, almost half of it is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. And so John gives uh, us a lot of material as we think about uh, this journey with Jesus. But let me just kind of set the stage in review a little bit, and then we'll get to John chapter uh, John chapter 19. So in our journey with Jesus, we really started in John chapter 11, and we discovered that it was the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead that really set the wheels in motion for the Jewish religious leaders to say, that's enough. Uh, Jesus is gathering this large following. We're feeling threatened, and they made a decision. We need to do away with Jesus. We read about that in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 53. So from that day on, they, the religious leaders, plotted to take Jesus' life right after the resurrection of Lazarus. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So um, the pressure is on, the heat is on Jesus, and after he raises Lazarus from the dead, him and his disciples go 20 miles north to a place called Ephraim, and they stay there for about a month. And if the goal of Jesus' life was to preserve his own life, he probably never would have returned to Jerusalem, which was where the uh, religious leaders were centered and where it would probably be dangerous for him to go. 
But Jesus' goal and purpose was not to preserve his life, but to, to give his life. And so we picked it up in John chapter 12, where we see Jesus and his disciples uh, coming down back to Bethany, which is right near Jerusalem, two miles away, and he's attending a party. It's given in his honor by Simon the leper. Now, the Bible doesn't say, but we speculated that perhaps Jesus had healed Simon the leper, and so Simon is giving him a, a party, a dinner party, to thank him for what he's done. This is Saturday. This is a, a week before, uh, six days before the Passover, before the cross, and Jesus is at this party. And if you remember, we looked at this five weeks ago, that something dramatic happened in that party, that Mary got this costly perfume uh, called spikenard. It's from the foothills of India. Twelve ounces worth a year's salary. And she broke it open and she anoints the feet of Jesus, and the disciples are not happy. And the disciples say, what are you doing, Mary? That's a waste. We could have sold this perfume and given it to the poor and helped a lot of people. And Jesus rebuked them and said, leave her alone. The poor you'll always have with you. And she's doing this to, to, to memorialize this occasion. And so that was Saturday. And then we looked at Palm Sunday, uh, the John chapter 12, beginning uh, halfway through the chapter. The very next day, then, Jesus gets on a donkey. And he rides into the streets of Jerusalem. And the, the crowds that are in, in uh, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and the population of Jerusalem would have swelled like 10 times its normal population the week of Passover. So there were... There were many, many more people there, and, and they start uh, praising Jesus. So Hosanna, the king of the Jews. They're, they're taking their coats off and making like a red carpet for him as he rides this donkey into the streets of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And we discovered it was a fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And the religious leaders, again, are not happy that Jesus is getting all the accolades and worship and attention. And so they tell Jesus, Rabbi, tell your disciples to be quiet. And what does Jesus say? This is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It's not in John. Jesus says, if they don't cry out and worship me, I'll make these stones cry out and worship me. And so Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. And as he approaches Jerusalem on that donkey, the Bible says he begins to cry. He weeps. One of three times in the New Testament that's recorded that Jesus is crying. He's weeping over the city of Jerusalem because the city of Jerusalem has rejected him. But we also suggested that perhaps he's weeping about over the city of Jerusalem because he knows that in about 30 or 35 years, the Roman uh, rule is going to come and they're going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple and they're going to kill hundreds of thousands of Jews. And that happened in 70 AD under the Roman emperor Titus. So Jesus is weeping for Jerusalem. Then we looked at John chapter 13. We fast forwarded. That's Thursday night, sometimes known as Monday Thursday. And we looked at Jesus with his disciples in the upper room. And here they are uh, observing the Passover meal. And at that evening, four 
shocking events happen. The first one was that Jesus got up and washed the feet of his disciples, which was um, a shocking to all of the disciples that Jesus would do that. And remember, Peter said, you know, resisted that. And Jesus said, hey, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. And Jesus taught the disciples some deep spiritual truths. And then he says, this is what I want you to do. Wash each other's feet. Some churches take that literally. We take that symbolically. He's saying, I want you to serve one another humbly. It's part of being a part of the body of Christ. But then Jesus announces that one of the 12 is going to betray him. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And by the way, disciples, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't come with me. And the disciples are left like reeling with all this difficult news to process. So no wonder in John chapter 14, Jesus tries to comfort them. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. He tries to comfort them with uh, talking about a future place called heaven and a promise and the person of Christ. Well, we didn't have time to look at the rest of John chapter 14, uh, 15, and 16. We fast-forwarded last week to John chapter 17. And here's Jesus, literally hours before the cross, less than 24 hours. And what is Jesus doing? What is on the mind of Jesus before it goes to the cross? Well, we know because John tells us. He records this prayer of Jesus, which is the longest, most personal prayer recorded in the Bible of Jesus. Jesus is praying. First of all, he's praying for himself. Father, would you glorify me so that I can glorify you through the cross? And that's what he did. And then Jesus prays for the 11 disciples. He prays that they would be protected from the evil one. He prays that they would be unified. He prays that they would be set apart and sanctified because he's going to send them out on a mission to take the good news to the world in the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But then we discovered that Jesus also prayed for us in this prayer. He prays for all future believers. John chapter 17, verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone, the 11 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's all future believers. Jesus prays for you and me. And what does he pray? That we might be one. That's, that's his prayer, that they all of them may be one, Father, just as you're in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Well, that was John chapter 17. We go to John chapter 18. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Peter denies the Lord three times. Jesus goes through several mock trials. This all takes place in the middle of the night. He's shifted between uh, the, the Jewish high priest. He's before Caiaphas, Annas. He's before the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod. And that brings us to John chapter 19 in our journey with Jesus, which is the crucifixion. And we're going to pick it up, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And so let's start reading in John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus 
and had him flogged. Now we need to, we need just to let that sink in. What that entailed, what that involved. I don't know, what was it, 15 years ago, 17 years ago? Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Many of you watched that movie. Um, it got an R rating because of the flogging scene, partially. And quite frankly, if you've seen that movie, it is very, very difficult to watch. Because it graphically portrays what flogging is and what Jesus went through even before he got to the cross. So let me just read a little bit about the, the flogging, and this is from Michael Card's commentary on the Gospel of John. The excruciating nature of flog, the flogging of Jesus is often misunderstood. First, Jesus did not receive 39 stripes. That was the prescription for Jewish synagogue discipline that Paul boasted of having received five times. Jesus received a Roman flogging administered with a flagellum, a collection of heavy leather straps into which bone, glass, and lead balls were embedded. There was no stipulation for how many lashes a person would receive, only that the person would be flogged until the flesh hung from their back. Usually a convicted criminal was flogged before crucifixion to hasten his death due to blood loss and shock. But Jesus' flogging is different. Pilate orders it before any sentence has been passed in order to try to appease the Jews. So Pilate had Jesus flogged before they even made the decision to crucify him. And and he's got this mob of Jews that are against him, and he's hoping that maybe that will satisfy them. Jesus is abused abused by the Roman soldiers, and he's wrapped in a purple robe, and he's crowned with thorns. And let's just look at that text there in John 19, Jesus before Pilate. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in his face. You ever been slapped in the face? Degrading? And they did that to Jesus over and over again. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered here, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted out, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate goes on to interrogate Jesus in in verses 8 through 11. And we'll just, for time's sake, skip to verse 12. It says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So they're putting political pressure on Pontius Pilate. And for someone to claim to be a king in the Roman world was was a serious thing. 
Because what were they supposed to say, the Roman citizens? There is no king but Caesar. Caesar is king. Caesar is Lord. And so if another person comes along and claims to be king, that's a serious charge. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is in Arabic, is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And so the decision is made, and Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. The most horrific death that uh, was around in the first century. Well, let's look at prophecy and the crucifixion, because um, a few weeks ago, uh, one of our uh, application points in our study from the Gospel of John was this, when life seems out of control, remember that God's in control. And here we have the crucifixion of Jesus, but what we're going to see is that God's still in control, isn't he? And uh, there was prophecy being fulfilled that the cross was no accident. The cross was not God's plan B because mankind rebelled in the garden. No, this was all a part of God's eternal plan. And so we see prophecy being uh, fulfilled. Uh, again, we, we read our scripture reading, verses 17 through 22. So let's pick it up in verse uh, 23. Uh, it says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. So there's four Roman soldiers in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. With the undergarment remaining, the garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So it was like this um, seamless tunic that uh, was worn in that day. I discovered from Jewish culture that it was customary for mothers to make a seamless tunic to be presented as a gift to their sons when they left home. This is probably something that Mary made for Jesus. This is something that was maybe like a, a, a parting gift, a going away gift from a mom to a son as he uh, ventures out from their home. And what are the Roman soldiers doing here? It says uh, that in verse 24, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. So there's one extra piece left over, and they say, we're not going to tear it into four parts. We're going to roll the dice. We're going to gamble and see who gets this, this tunic. Little did those Roman soldiers know that by that very act, They were fulfilling prophetic scripture that was written hundreds of years previous to that. Psalm 22, 18, one of the psalms about the the crucifixion and the cross. The psalmist writes, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So here is a fulfillment of scripture. uh, As the Roman soldiers gamble for that last piece of clothing. Well, it goes on to say this is what the soldiers did. This happened in fulfillment of Scripture, verse 24. 
verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That's a lot of Marys. So here's the women, and, and, and they're, they're at the cross. Where are the, where are the 11 disciples? They're all gone except John. The apostle John's there, but the, the gospels say the rest of those, uh, the disciples fled, and they're, they are not to be seen. Where are Jesus' other siblings? He had five other siblings, according to the Gospel of Mark. They're not there either. The Scriptures tell us they did not become believers in Jesus until after the resurrection. And so Jesus, in his um, dying moments on the cross, uh, looks down and sees his mother there. Verse 26, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John. He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple John, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And so Jesus is, is making sure his mom's going to be cared for. Um, Joseph has probably died a long time ago. We don't read anything about Joseph uh, uh, except when Jesus was 12 is the last mention of Joseph. And so Jesus in his dying hour commits the care of his mother to the beloved disciple and his friend John. Well, verse 28, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. Actually, the other Gospels tell us that was a loud cry. It was the word tetelestai. It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head. And gave up the spirit. Well, even um, verse 29 was a fulfillment of scripture as well. The, the wine vinegar that was there. Uh, that's prophesied in Psalm 69.21. And so another, another prophecy uh, is fulfilled. Uh, pick it up in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, the Passover. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So they broke the legs of the other two. Jesus had already died. And the reason they broke their legs, they wanted them off the cross before the, the Sabbath. And uh, um, the only way that uh, you died by crucifixion, by uh, asphyxiation, and the only way you could breathe was to somehow lift up and, and bring some air into your lungs and breathe. But if your legs were broken, you're going to die a lot quicker because you, you, you can't do that action. And so no bones of Jesus were broken. Again, a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 34, 20. 
He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. There's another prophecy fulfilled in, in uh, the, the last part of the, the, the text here. And it said, uh, uh, they throw the spear into Jesus' side and then uh, these things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. That's Zechariah 12.10. And so here, what's happening during the crucifixion when it seems like Life is out of control. No, God's in control. And he's fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Well, let's look at uh, the last part of our outline here, and it has to do with uh, two very brave men, two brave Pharisees, and the burial of Jesus, uh, beginning in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly feared, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. Notice who was with him. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about 75, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. Here's these two, these two men who are like secret followers of Jesus. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So it's Joseph of Arimathea, it's Nicodemus, two men who were part of the Sanhedrin council, the religious governing body who just days earlier had voted, maybe hours earlier, had voted to crucify Jesus. And now all of a sudden, here comes these two members of the religious elite, and they come forward and Joseph of Arimathea boldly comes before Pilate and asks to take the body of Jesus, and they bury him. Let me just read quickly Michael Card's commentary. Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body. John tells us he is one of those secret disciples of Jesus. Apparently so is Nicodemus. Now the two of them come to claim the body. Nicodemus provides a costly bed of spices on which to lay the body. According to Jewish burial customs, they wrap the body in strips of fine linen and place it in a new garden tomb that had never been used before. Matthew tells us it was Joseph's own tomb. Wrapping a body and laying it on a bed of spices was step one of the two-step process of Jewish burial. The body would be left in the tomb for a year while the flesh decomposed and fell away from the bones. Step two involved a member of the family coming and washing the bones, placing them in an ossuary. Jesus did not need step two. He barely needed step one. (laughs) He didn't stay there very long, did he? And that's what we're going to look at next Sunday. Well, that's John chapter 19, and just in the last 10 minutes here, let's, let's go through just quickly some life lessons 
from John chapter 19 and, and the cross. Here's the first one. Don't miss the great exchange. Don't miss the great exchange. Isaiah chapter 53, uh, that familiar, famous passage from Isaiah written 700 years before the crucifixion. Notice the personal pronouns here. He's referring to, to, to Jesus and the crucifixion. He says, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How do we experience forgiveness of sin and peace with God and eternal life? We have to experience the great exchange. We have to experience what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a pretty good trade. We're trading all of our sin, all of our punishment, all the pain and the penalty that we deserved, and what do we get? We get the righteousness of Christ. We get his perfection credited to our account. Because he bore our sins. He bore our pain. He took our punishment. As my theology professor, Dr. Victor Matthews said, he's been in, in heaven for a lot of years now. He says, Jesus' death is sufficient for all, but it's efficient for those that believe. In other words, we have to, we have to do something, don't we? We have to personally put our faith and trust in him and make that great exchange our sin for his righteousness. I trust you've made that commitment in your life. Secondly, life lesson number two, pain in God's plan always has a greater purpose. Pain in in God's overall plan always has a greater purpose. In fact, the book of 1 Peter, written to persecuted Christians who were um, had to live scattered from their homeland because of the persecution. The whole theme of First Peter is pain with a purpose. And that's true in our lives. We can, we can, what helps us get through pain is if we know there's a, there's a purpose to it, that, that there's a reason for it. Jesus was a man of suffering, familiar with pain, Isaiah 53, 3. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, Isaiah 53, 4. So we looked a little bit at the the pain of the cross, the physical pain. But the most incredible pain of the cross for Jesus was the spiritual pain. The pain of Jesus was experiencing the sins of the world, every sin that was ever had been committed, was being committed, and in the future would be committed. Every sin that we would ever commit, the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, placed on Jesus. 
And so there's three hours of darkness. And Jesus experienced the pain of separation from God the Father during those dark moments. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? It's the only time in Scripture when Jesus prays that he doesn't call God his Father because God could not look on sin. And the wrath of God was poured out on his Son. Pain of Jesus had a purpose. He was purchasing our redemption. That's true in our lives as well, isn't it? That pain has a purpose. God uses pain in many ways in our life. Number one, to get our attention. Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You know, how many stories have you heard of, of somebody that you know, kind of goes off the wrong path spiritually and, and uh, they experience some really difficult, difficult things. And what's that? It's God's chastening hand saying, hey, uh, like, like a father disciplining a, a, a child, God's wanting to bring him back. And the psalmist says, before I experienced pain, I was doing my own thing. But, but now I, I obey your word. God uses pain to grow us, to mature us. First Peter 5.10, the last part of First Peter that says, uh, uh, after you have suffered a little while, is writing to believers, God himself will restore you and make you what? Strong, firm, and steadfast. God uses pain in our life to prepare us to minister to other people effectively and sympathetically. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, talks about that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God so that we can comfort others in trouble. In other words, we go through pain in our life, and as God brings us through that pain, what's he doing? He's preparing us to minister to other people who may be going through something very similar. It was A.W. Tozer that said, God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. And so God uses pain, uh, and always pain in our life has a, a greater purpose. Life lesson number three in his life and death, Jesus models concern for others. In his life and in his death, Jesus models concern for others. And so here's Jesus. He's in the last week of his life. And, um, you know, Jesus doesn't have this, like, this bucket list, like, well, this is what I want to experience in my life before I die. No, he, he knows his mission. He knows he's going to the cross. And so John chapter 13, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them. And so here he is a week before his death, and he's, he's washing the feet of his disciples, doing a humble task that needed to be done. He's modeling concern for others. The passage we read in John 19 is he's hanging on the cross. What's he concerned about? He's concerned about his mom. Who's going to take care of mom? And so he, he makes sure that John the Beloved will take his mom and 
care for her, and history tells us that's what he did, that, uh, that John took her into his own home. What else is he doing? He's, he's praying. He's praying for the very people that are crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And guess what? God did forgive them about six weeks later at Pentecost when Peter preached a sermon. Some of the same people that crucified Jesus were there. 3,000 people came to know Christ and some of the very same people who were shouting crucify him were now part of something called the church. The thief on the cross in Jesus' dying moment, in his dying moment. The individual who had been earlier cursing Jesus is now saying, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into my kingdom, your kingdom? And Jesus, what did Jesus say? Today, this very day, you're going to be with me in paradise. That thief on the cross was not a member of a church, had never been baptized, had never been to a Bible study, had, had never done any of those things. And yet in his dying moment, he put his faith in Jesus, and Jesus said, you're, you're going to be in the kingdom this very day. Jesus models concern for others, and so Paul writes in Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the humility of Jesus as he models being an others-oriented person. Well, lastly, life lesson number four, and then we're done. It takes courage to identify as a follower of Jesus. It takes courage to identify as a follower of Jesus. And as we looked at the, the burial of Jesus, who was it? It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin, who publicly kind of came out of the closet and said, we're followers of Jesus. And that would have been very, very risky. Remember, where are the disciples Sunday night they're in an upper room with the doors locked because they're thinking, if they came for him and took our leader, we may be next. And here's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that comes before Pilate and says, um, we want to take the body of Jesus. And they give him a proper, proper burial. Peter's already folded under pressure. Matthew twenty six fifty six um, in the storyline says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled before the cross. But here's two Pharisees who, just a few days earlier, as I mentioned, uh, the Sanhedrin had voted to crucify Jesus. They come forward to give Jesus an honorable burial. Takes courage to identify as a follower of Jesus. And what I want to say in the culture in which we live and the way that our American culture has changed in the last 40 or 50 years, it will take courage for every one of us unless we want to be a secret follower, which Jesus doesn't want us to be a secret follower. It will take courage in our post-Christian culture to identify 
as a genuine follower of Jesus. So our kids and our grandkids are probably going to face ridicule in the days ahead if they're going to identify as a follower of Jesus. They may, they, they may, they may endure, uh, some, some ridicule and, and some not very nice words from, from people. And, and that will be true of us as well as our culture says it's okay to say anything and do anything except be a Christian publicly. And so it will take courage to be a follower of Jesus. And so the scriptures tell us we need to speak the truth in love. We need to not only say, um, loving things and truth with our lips, but also with our life. Let our light shine, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, so that others may see our good works and glorify our God in heaven. It takes courage to be a follower of Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. So the Apostle Paul and the, and, and the uh, disciples, um, while they fled before they, uh, Jesus went to the cross, guess what happened six weeks later after Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came? And now we see uh, Peter, um, you know, if Peter was the guest speaker um, on that day in our churches or so, well, here's the fellow that six weeks ago denied that he even knew Jesus because he was uh, afraid of what might happen to him, but now he's going to give our sermon today. <laughs> and Peter stands up and he gives this bold sermon, and now the apostles are, are sharing the gospel wherever they went, and they're being told, uh, you're, you're going to be put in prison if you keep doing this, and they say, no, we're going to obey God rather than man. We can't help but speak the things that we've seen and the things that we've heard. And every one of them, except the Apostle John, ends up, what, giving their life as a martyr for the cause of Christ. And John ends up isolated on the Isle of Patmos. And so if we're going to be a a genuine follower of Jesus, I'm just giving you a heads up. Better be prepared because it's going to take courage. Speak the truth, to stand for the truth, and to share the love of Jesus with others. Let's uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for just a few moments this morning to pause and refocus on the cross, to refocus on the crucifixion, to refocus on all that Jesus did for us. And Lord, we are so thankful. Lord, I pray that everyone here this morning has made the great exchange. Their sin for the righteousness of Christ because you paid it all. You paid through your son. Our sacrifice became our sacrifice, became our sin bearer. And Lord, we pray that everyone here has made that commitment. Lord, may we not just keep that news to ourselves, but may we share it with others that need to hear the good news of the gospel. Lord, help us not to be a secret believer, a secret follower. Give us the boldness of the Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who 
came forward and said, well, we'll take the body of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. Lord, give us the courage to do that. Help us to speak the truth in love. And may your name be glorified in all that we say and do. We'll thank you in your name. Amen. Thank you.